it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Welcome one and all. We are happy to have you here We are especially happy to welcome to the Guy Benson Show radio family, WIBX, AM 950 in Utica, New York, your news talk and sports leader in Utica. And we are proud to be on that station, the newest edition here in this radio family. We talk a lot about the growing podcast, which is just leaps and bounds ahead of where it's been even recently. We are grateful to all of you for that. We are also expanding on the terrestrial radio footprint, and we could not be more happy, more excited, more proud to now be in that lineup at WIBX, Utica, New York. So thanks, and hello, Utica, and hello to everyone else as well. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, that's our time slot live. You can also check out our podcast that I mentioned a moment ago if you miss any of the show. All the resources that are related to all of this Available online at GuyBensonShow.com. It's all right there. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow. If you're new, if you are just starting to tune into the show, not totally acclimated yet, whether you're in Utica or elsewhere, let me just tell you a bit about myself. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on TV tonight in the 6 p.m. hour, the evening edit on Fox Business Network. See you there. And then, of course, host of this fine program every weekday. Here's the lineup on the show. Josh Krasauer will be joining us later on this hour, right around half an hour from now, breaking down some of the results last night in the primaries, South Carolina, Nevada, elsewhere. Some interesting developments as we start to get a clearer picture ahead of November where this midterm cycle might be headed. Josh is one of the best in the business, and he will be here with his analysis. In the next hour, Shannon Bream, our colleague at Fox News. It was another busy day at the U.S. Supreme Court. More decisions were announced, not really the big ones on guns or abortion. We're still waiting on those, but we will get into what happened today and what we're still waiting on with Shannon coming up. In our last hour, the 5 p.m. hour, the happy hour, Ted Budd, a congressman from North Carolina, He's going to be here. He is now the GOP nominee for the United States Senate in North Carolina. Big race there, a must-win contest for the Republicans. If they want to win back the majority in the upper chamber, North Carolina has to be in the red column. And we will ask Ted Budd how he plans to keep it there coming up two hours from now. As we begin the show, I want to bring you a quick Fox News alert. The NIH just minutes ago announcing that Dr. Anthony Fauci has tested positive for COVID. And I'm actually surprised that it took this long. I know that he is very cautious given his demographics. I don't blame him. I've had my dis- my differences, my, you know, departures 
from some of his recommendations. We have been critical of him on this show more than once. But given his profile and the fact that he now apparently has gotten this virus, we do wish him the very best. We hope that his recovery is swift and complete. And then he can come back to lecturing us and we can criticize him again. But no criticism till he's recovered. And we do wish him very well. Get well soon, Dr. Fauci. Now, let's talk about last night. There were a number of races around the country. We teased a couple of them yesterday. We've glanced at a couple of them from time to time on the show ahead of the primary slate. There was also a race that I'd been keeping an eye on under the radar, and I'd seen some placards and banners for this race just recently when I was down at the southern border in Texas. There was a special election to fill a vacant congressional seat down in South Texas. Part of the district does border Mexico, right? It is a border district. And this is a district in South Texas that has been controlled by the Democrats for a very, very long time. And in the special election last night, the Republican, Myra Flores, who's actually born in Mexico, she's an immigrant, she came to this country, she's become a citizen, she ran for Congress as a Republican, as a conservative, she flipped the seat. This is the 34th congressional district in the state of Texas. It's in the Rio Grande Valley. And demographically, listen to this. This district is almost 85% Hispanic. This is one of the most Hispanic districts in the entire United States of America. Just a hair over 84% Hispanic. And in this special election, in this moment, under these circumstances, the Republicans won it. And it really wasn't that close. Last I checked, with 95 or so percent of the vote in, she was ahead by eight points. There was a good likelihood a lot of the expectations were that it would go to a runoff because there were four people running, two Republicans, two Democrats. But it was really two main candidates. But unless anyone got to 50 plus one percent, that wouldn't be enough. There would be a runoff election. But she did. She won it outright. Ms. Flores did. Congresswoman-elect Flores So Nancy Pelosi's very thin margin that she has right now, the operational margin, right around half a dozen seats, got even thinner because an 84 percent Hispanic district in the south of Texas went from blue to red last night. Now, there are a few factors here that I want to caution us not to get like overly optimistic about this one data point, about this one special election. But before we get to the hold your horses Commentary. Let's actually talk about why this really is quite significant. I was looking at this district in recent electoral cycles, dating back to Donald Trump in 2016. So the Democrats won this seat, Texas 34, in 2016 by a margin of 63 to 37. So not close. That is a safe Democratic seat. By 2018, which was a blue wave year, the margin had actually come down a bit from 26 points 
to 20 points, 60-40, still very heavily Democratic, a 60-40 split, a Democratic year. In 2020, the margin crept even closer again, down from 20 points to 13 points. The Democrat won it there 55 to 42 percent. But that was just two years ago. The Democrats held the seat by 13 points in 2020. Joe Biden won that district. And then last night, by eight points, Republican Myra Flores prevailed and flipped it. So if you do the net percentage point swing from 2016 to 2022 in this district, which I'll remind you is overwhelmingly Hispanic, the Republican vote share swung 34 points in six years. That is absolutely extraordinary. We've written about this. We've talked about this. The movement among Hispanic voters, not just Cubans in South Florida, but Puerto Ricans in Central Florida. Venezuelans living in different parts around the country. Mexican-Americans in Nevada. That's going to be a very interesting demographic to look at out in the Silver State. We'll ask Josh Krasauer about that coming up, given what happened last night out in Nevada. And then a lot of Mexican-Americans in South Texas. You used to see just a bright blue line down along the border. That is starting to look a lot more purple, if not red. Within the last year, you had the mayorship of McAllen, Texas, where we did the show from during our border trip. That mayorship flipped to the Republicans within the last year. Down in the Rio Grande Valley... There was a state house seat in Texas that flipped from blue to red. There was another state house seat that was going to. So the Democrat just switched parties and became a Republican. And in some of the stories written about this in The New York Times and elsewhere, it's been interesting to see that it's women, Latinas. That have been really driving this potential realignment. Among this demographic in that part of Texas and the dream of demographics just flipping Texas. We've heard this from Democrats for years. Eventually, the the demographics are going to win. There's going to be too many people who aren't white, and the Republicans ultimately are doomed in Texas. Well, how's that looking right now? Demographics, as it turned out, is not destiny. People can change their minds. People can get sick of things. People can decide that the party that thinks that they own them actually has no right to their vote. People getting pandered to on issues like immigration can say, you know what, I don't support this. I don't support the chaos. I don't support the open borders. I hate this inflation. I can't afford things. I don't want this weird stuff taught to my kids in school. I'm not a fan of abortion on demand for nine months. What are we doing here? And they start changing their voting behavior. And that is what we are seeing down in South Texas. And if there were a few sort of soft alarm bells, some of the other examples that I just gave, this is clearly a five alarm fire for the Democrats. 34 point swing, an 84 percent Hispanic district. The Republican wins it outright. A Latina who ran a positive campaign. The Democrats spent money against her, even though she'll only have the seat in this district for a few months 
because the districts are all moving with redistricting. So it'll be a new map for 2022. So once the new Congress comes in next year. But they spent money on this race. They tried to tie her into January 6th. That did not work, obviously. She campaigned on family and faith and all the failures of the Democrats, and she turned the district. And the January 6th chum in the water did not affect her. She won by eight points. That was at least last we checked with 95 or so percent of the vote in. So the patterns and the shifts in the electorate have been further confirmed. Democrats are extremely concerned, and they should be. I saw one political analyst, Hispanic, saying there's an earthquake, politically speaking, an earthquake happening in Latino politics in places like South Texas. Sean Trendy, we've had him on the show from Real Clear Politics. He watches these types of trends, which is appropriate given his name. His actual name is Sean Trendy, and he watches political trends. He thought that one day... Years into the future, Hispanics might start to vote this way. And the Hispanic vote might to start uh, might start to look more like the Appalachian vote. He said he was expecting this type of movement maybe within the next 15 to 20 years. But the future apparently is now. And even he is expressing how astonished he is at how quickly this thing has moved. And by the way, when you look at the state of Texas more broadly, brand new poll came out this week, a Democratic poll from a Democratic firm looking at the governor's race in Texas. Has Greg Abbott up 19 points on Beto O'Rourke, 56-37. Now, whether it ends up being that much of a blowout, it looks like Abbott is on track to win big in Texas, not just because of the blue wave, but because bluer parts of his state, heavily Hispanic areas, are getting redder. And the whole theory of a blue Texas is crumbling before the eyes of the Democratic Party because the voters, those pesky voters, aren't actually agreeing. Maybe they should call them Latinx a little bit more, that made-up term. Maybe they should listen to AOC. That was her recommendation recently. Go even more woke. See how that goes. How's that playing with Hispanics who hate the term? Maybe Better O'Rourke can show up and heckle a few more press conferences. After a mass shooting, that'll really endear himself further. So this is really a pretty amazing thunderbolt politically. Now, just to keep things in perspective, as I alluded to, this district is going to change with the redistricting. The map is going to look different for this next upcoming election in November than taking effect with the new districts and people represented in Congress starting in 2023. So this district, as it currently exists, will only exist for a few more months. And that's where Myra Flores will be representing for this short period of time. Then she'll try again in the new district in November. But the new district is going to go to a Biden plus 15 margin. So it's going to be a lot tougher for her to win in November. I see the Cook political report says that that will be a lean Democratic seat. But I would not guarantee that it will stay blue. It'll be probably win backable, if you will, for the Democrats because it's such a blue uh, blue seat. But when you look at the actual underlying currents here, whether Flores can pull it off again or not, 
things are a changing in a very, very major way down there. And what we saw last night is just, I'd say, a very big red flag, no pun intended, for leftists, progressive in the Democratic Party. With a lot of people sick of what they're seeing in Washington and from the far left. Speaking of which, we'll get to something that has been reported by one of our colleagues, Bill Malugin, involving the border down in Texas. Some new details on that when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. One more note from this big upset victory down in South Texas in the 84% Hispanic district with the Republicans flipping it blue to red. Jamal Bowman is a left-wing Democrat from New York. He reacted to Elon Musk, who's now a Texan, announcing that Musk voted for the Republican, Ms. Flores, in this race. So Congressman Bowman decided to slander everyone involved, calling Musk, wait for it, a white supremacist and authoritarian. I'm just trying to figure out how this works. So the immigrant, Elon Musk, who becomes a U.S. citizen, moves to Texas, builds multiple businesses, votes for the Mexican immigrant Latina, born in Mexico, the first female Mexican-born member of Congress ever from either party. And voting for her is an act of white supremacy? It's very hard to keep up with these rules. I hope these left-wingers continue with this. Just slander everyone, make it all about race all the time, see how that goes. I think a lot of people, including a lot of Hispanics, are tired of it. Another story from the border, remember the fake whipping outrage that Biden said was, you know, this outrageous thing? The border agents who were whipping the illegal immigrants on their horses, they're going to be made to pay. They're going to pay, he said. And there was no whipping. It was a a total hoax. It was a a smear. Those agents were cleared of criminal wrongdoing. But now sources are telling our colleague Bill Malugin that they're going to try to get these guys on some sort of administrative malfeasance or violation. We'll get him on this show tomorrow to talk about that, which strikes me as retribution for politics. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
specifically along the border, the Rio Grande Valley, South Texas. We have seen county after county, whether it's in this district or some of the districts to the west of it, where voters have moved 10, 20, 30, 40 points away from the Democrats and toward the Republicans. This district that Myra Flores won last night, Barack Obama got more than 60 percent of the vote here when he last ran in 2012. Hillary Clinton won this district by 22 points. It's shifted that dramatically. Joe Biden carried it by four in 2020. And now in a special election, a Republican candidate has won it outright. We've seen shifts like this throughout South Texas. This, by the way, is the second most heavily Hispanic congressional district in the United States. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. That's Steve Kornacki over on MSNBC talking about that trajectory of the district that we were just talking about in the open that flipped from blue to red in dramatic fashion from a 26 point Democratic margin just in 2016 to an eight point Republican win last night in the special. And that last thing that he pointed out, I think, is what is probably giving ulcers to a lot of Democratic strategists. This district is the second most Hispanic district in the entire country. So a lot of the sort of think pieces about trends among that demographic just uh, coming to a head and manifesting in real life in last night's election. With us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal, Fox News radio political analyst. Starting next month, he's joining Axios as their senior politics reporter. And Josh, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be back on the show, Guy. We spent... A fair amount of the first half hour talking about the race in Texas 34. Pelosi's tiny margin gets even thinner ahead of November and January. I know the district changes when the new Congress convenes with redistricting. So this might be tougher with the new lines for Republicans to hold on to after the November election. But if you just look at the current district as it is currently drawn, the way that Hispanic voters have shifted is really eye-opening, and I think there have to be implications and lessons to be learned and, frankly, uh, fear and concern to be grappled with on the Democratic side, given the fact that it's no longer just polls or New York Times stories about something in the water down there. It's actually happening in hard, black-and-white, you know, vote totals. Yeah, Guy, there, there are about 27 seats that Democrats hold that are true battlegrounds that have 15 percent Hispanic vote or more in, in, in their districts. And Republicans are now looking a lot close, more closely at those races. They, 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 they are betting that even a small shift – and by the way, in Texas, this is a huge shift. You yep. just said the numbers, Guy, yourself. Like how it, – it's unprecedented to see that dramatic – of a change in such a short period of time. But Republicans are looking at other districts, and, and, and they may not need that, that dramatic of a shift. They just need you know, a five-point shift, ten-point shift among Hispanic voters. And if that happens, a wave election could turn into a tsunami, that, that races that were not contested, not seen as competitive for a long time, could become competitive because Hispanics are no longer reliable Democratic voters. And I think it's going to be different in different – the Texas – that you're seeing in the Rio Grande Valley – a particularly pronounced shift away from the Democratic Party that it's going to be written in the history books in, 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 in years to come. Florida, the, the, there was a dynamic with South Florida 
voters, Cuban-Americans, Puerto Ricans as well. That really also is, is, is an ominous foreshadowing of the Democratic lagging fortunes in that state. It's a little more of a mixed bag in other states. But again, it, it, even if you lose a few points in these big states, Nevada, for one, uh, New Mexico, the governor's race in New Mexico, even if it's a, a marginal shift towards the Republicans, it could turn, again, races that shouldn't be in play into big pickup opportunities for the Republican Party. You mentioned Nevada. That's a very interesting state in November, as far as I'm concerned. In the congressional races where the Democrats may have gerrymandered themselves into oblivion, there's a chance the Republicans could, on a really good night, sweep all of the races, the House races in that state. There's a governor's race. There's a Senate race as well. I know some people believe that Catherine Cortez Masto, who's the incumbent Democratic senator, might be the most vulnerable, most endangered Democrat in the whole Senate. She now has an opponent. It's Adam Laxalt. He won the primary last night on the Republican side. Here he is in victory. Cut 13. This is Laxalt. These failed policies brought on by radical elites are not just a product of Joe Biden, though he has served as a useful puppet, but they lie at the feet of Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and senators like her who make the crazy woke agenda possible in America today. This election is going to be a referendum on Senator Masto and all of these elites who look down on us. Elections have consequences, they say, and well, so do these liberal policies that are driving Nevada and our nation into the ditch. Let's talk about Nevada, Josh, for a moment. I know that there are Republicans who are very bullish on that state looking ahead to November. I know that there are experts on the ground like John Ralston in that state who've been sounding the alarm for Democrats saying they're getting their rear ends kicked on voter registration by the Republicans and some of these other factors that are at play. What do you think of Laxalt winning the primary? Not exactly a surprise. And then how are things shaping up toward the fall? I agree that Nevada offers Republicans the best pickup opportunity in the Senate, largely because you've got a guy who held a high office before in the state. Uh, I, I think there are some questions about Laxalt and where he stands on some issues, how you know some of the, the, the comments he made in the aftermath of January 6th that are going to come into play. But with inflation the way it is, the, in Nevada's, the gas prices are higher in Nevada than almost any other state in the country. It's a working-class state. The, I mean, the shutdowns at the casinos really hit hard, the, the labor force there. It's just a, sort of a, a confluence of forces that is really hitting the Democratic Party hard in Nevada and add, add to the woes that they're facing with Hispanic voters to that mix. It is a, a state that has a sizable Hispanic constituency as well. Uh, yeah, it, it, it suggests that you could see Republicans winning the governorship, the Senate race, and every single House district in the state if, if, this, if the polling is to be believed, if a wave does indeed continue to, to, to flood uh, the state, as, as the polls suggest. So Nevada, to me, I, I said this on Fox News Sunday last weekend, but if you gave me a whiteboard like Karl Rove and I had to pick one state to look at, as a bellwether, it's Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. Republicans, and if it is, that would suggest we're seeing a huge uh, wave in, in the 2022 midterms. Yeah, and in that Senate race, the incumbent, Cortez Masto, is basically the embodiment of a generic Democrat. She does anything Chuck Schumer ever tells her to do. She votes the party line every time. There's nothing independent or really that interesting about her. She is a generic Democrat. And if you look at the generic ballot, that's not a great place to be, especially in a state where there are so many dissatisfied people. 
So that's why I think Laxalt is going to have a lot of enthusiasm behind him, a lot of money coming into that race. Uh, and it's one of the dominoes that potentially could fall in early November. Meanwhile, let's shift to South Carolina. There were a couple of races, primary races on the Republican side last night that people were keeping an eye on because of this sort of proxy war involving former President Donald Trump. So in one of those districts, you had Congressman Tom Rice, a Republican, who was one of the handful of House Republicans who voted in favor of the second impeachment after January 6th. From a very conservative district, he kind of surprised some people, but he voted for impeachment. He voted his conscience. He never backed away from it. And he got swept out in the Republican primary last night, much to the delight of President Trump. Trump was also playing in South Carolina one where Nancy Mace was the incumbent. She's been on this show multiple times. She was in a real dogfight with Trump's handpicked, endorsed challenger trying to unseat Mace because I guess Trump decided that Mace was insufficiently loyal, didn't do enough of the things that he wanted her to, so he wanted to punish her for that. And so he was all in for Mace's opponent. Mace ended up winning last night by about eight points. A very nice feather in her cap. She ran a good campaign. She got a very nice assist from Nikki Haley, who threw her weight behind Mace and really went in and leaned into that race and prevailed along with Nancy Mays. I just want to ask your opinion on this, Josh, because I've seen a lot of people, even smart political observers, saying, wow, what really is the lesson? Because Trump won one down in South Carolina, but he also lost one. What's going on here? And my takeaway, and I would love you to agree or disagree, my takeaway is if you look at Nancy Mace or Brian Kemp versus someone like Tom Rice, the lesson seems to be increasingly that if you are hostile to Trump, your days are numbered in elected Republican politics right now. If Trump is hostile to you, but you do not return that hostility That's not necessarily the case, and you can hang on. I think in the past, any bad blood or hostility might be sort of the end of the line. That seems to be changing, but that's my distinction. Which way the hostility is running uh, could determine whether or not the Trump, getting crossways of Trump is survivable or not. Looking at Kemp, and he did a lot more than survive. He thrived. And then Mace, who hung on by a pretty substantial margin, versus Rice, who got blown out. How do you read it? Do you think there's maybe an element of truth to that analysis that I just offered? That's a really great way of putting it, Guy. I never thought of it that way. I, the way I kind of viewed it is that, you know, Republican candidates who don't talk about Trump and, and, and may may disagree with Trump on policy here and there, may disagree with him on, on the election conspiracy theories. You can survive that as long as you don't lean into that, which is basically what you're saying. But, yep. you know, I, I think I think what – you look at the, the the success or the lack of success among the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment of the House, and there are not going to be many of them coming back, maybe one or two, but it's looking like their win-loss record is going to be pretty bleak. But the win-loss record for other races where Trump has engaged in and endorsed candidates uh, – you know, at odds with the establishment, not not as good. It's actually pretty pretty mediocre. So, you know, I do think that look at Nancy Mace as a case study. She was very critical of, of Trump. Uh, it sounded like a possible vote for impeachment at one point, but then she changed her tune. She didn't, you know, become 
drinking the Trump Kool-Aid necessarily, but she agreed with his policy. She said the good th- talking about the good things Trump did as president. She pivoted away from the the impeachment talk that that she was engaged in in January of 2021, and that allowed her, even though she you know she was still criticized by Trump very aggressively. Trump came into South Carolina specifically attacking Nancy Mace, but because she didn't dwell on the issues that she dwelled on in the aftermath of January 6th, that allowed her to buy some goodwill with with Trump supporters and and get enough of a margin over over her. And I also there. think, I also think, Josh, if you look. At that race in particular, I mentioned Nikki Haley, sort of an interesting flex for her as well. She decided to weigh in. She decided to get involved in this race, knowing that she was not on the same side as Trump on the endorsement game. And I don't know if she was VIP in this race for Mace, but she was very helpful. That's just, I think, an interesting side note among politicos, because a lot of folks are looking at a potential 24 field. Nikki Haley's name comes up and she made a calculation in her state, in her own backyard to get involved. And it looked like at least in this circumstance, it paid off for her. Yeah, I, re- I remember those old Newsweek magazines where they said who's up and who's down and whose who's stock is up. Nikki Haley's stock is up this week because she didn't just support Nancy Mace. She held a huge fundraiser for her, actually, I think multiple fundraisers. For, for the congresswoman, she cut an ad, a very, very impressive ad in the final week of the campaign, urging voters in South Carolina to vote Nancy Mace. Uh, she campaigned with her. She put political capital on the line against uh, the candidate that President Trump, Trump endorsed. And she is the MVP of, of the Nancy Mace campaign. She really, I think, brought home a lot of the, the voters on the Republican side who you know, may not agree with everything Trump says voted for him in, in 2016 and 2020, but aren't quite as hardcore, and they ended up coming back to Nancy Mace. That that was an important validator, having someone like Nikki Haley, who served in the Trump administration as as his uh, U.N. ambassador. Obviously, there were some disagreements here and there, but she's the type of Republican that plays really well in that Charleston, low country, South, South Carolina district. Josh Cross, our last minute here, quickly a poll today out of Pennsylvania has the Democrats statewide winning in PA in the Senate race and in the governor race. Both of the Democrats are in the mid 40s, so that's not exactly determinative. Uh, and the Republicans still seem a little bit split coming out of some bruising primaries. I think both of those races, especially on the Senate side, will tighten considerably for all sorts of different reasons. But at least a glimmer of good news for the Democrats, although, again, there's a difference between 44 or 45 percent and 49, 50, 51. I might sound like a broken record on this, but in Senate races, candidates matter. Having good candidates is really important. And the thing that should worry Republicans about that poll, and I think the numbers are going to change. I wouldn't, you know, take the, take the poll literally. But Dr. Oz's numbers are, are horrible. I mean, he has worse numbers than Joe Biden. And just as many people know who he is. And part of it is because it was a very bruising Republican primary with Dave McCormick. But but he's got got some work to do to, to get his image back back to normal. And there are a lot of other. There was a poll yesterday, a reputable poll in Georgia, showing Herschel Walker's negatives are pretty high. And there's a lot of you know, yeah, Republicans are winning across the board in Georgia, but not that Senate race. Hi. Um, so I, I, you know, the House is a great story for Republicans. I'm a little bit um, skeptical about some of these candidates. Uh, we've talked about yeah, Herschel Walker before. Arizona is a big red flag. Doctor, I, I thought Doctor Oz would actually be a pretty decent candidate, but he has a lot of work to do. There was a yeah, lot of work to do. I think skeptical. work to do is the right phrase. I would say if we get to you know mid to late summer, early fall, and it's still looking ugly, uh, you know, we'll talk again 
Uh, he has work to do. I think he can maybe pull it off, but it's not going to be a cakewalk. And at least he's starting the general election, it looks like, from behind, even in a year like this one, a cycle like this one. We'll be watching all of it. So will Josh Krasauer at National Journal, soon to be at Axios, a Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, thank you. Thanks, Guy. Talk soon. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday we opened with the breaking news that the House finally passed the Supreme Court protection bill to add more security for the justices and their families given all of the threats and the doxing and, of course, the assassination attempt against Justice Kavanaugh. The Senate, before the assassination attempt, when all the protests were having were happening rather outside the houses with the Internet just exploding with the justices' addresses and all of that, the Senate unanimously passed the funding to protect the justices and their family with more security. The House did nothing. Nancy Pelosi sat on it week after week after week and then finally got shamed into doing something on it after that gunman showed up outside Brett Kavanaugh's home. There were 27 Democrats who voted no Mostly squad types. Cori Bush, for example, member of the squad from Missouri, she spent hundreds of thousands of campaign dollars on her own personal security. But she wants to defund the police for her constituents, and she doesn't want the Supreme Court and their families to get more security. What an interesting character she is. Look at those priorities. But there were also some more moderate members, quote-unquote moderate Democrats, who were among the 27. I was sort of perplexed. The entire New Jersey delegation, for example, voted no. A listener sent me their reason why they wanted all federal judges to get more protection because of a horrible incident that happened in New Jersey. They didn't get that expansion, so they voted no. I still think that's weak. If you think that the justices need that extra protection, you should vote yes, even if it doesn't go far enough for your tastes. 27 no votes on that bill. Pretty extraordinary. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A fresh hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three hours between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Welcome in. Thanks for listening. If you can't catch the entire program live, which we do recommend... There's a podcast, which we also recommend, at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free of charge, on demand, each and every day, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us on social. Catch me tonight on TV. I'll be on the evening edit with Elizabeth McDonald, 6 p.m. hour Eastern time on Fox Business Network. Fox News alert as we get into this middle hour. The Dow closes up today, 303 points, a surge on Wall Street. The Dow ending the day at 30,668 amid a very eventful day. This from the Wall Street Journal earlier. The Federal Reserve approved the largest interest rate increase since 1994, signaling it would continue lifting rates this year at the most rapid pace in decades as it races to slow the economy 
and combat inflation that is running at a 40-year high. Officials agreed to a 0.75 percentage point rate hike at their two-day policy meeting that concluded today. This also coming on the same day that Americans' retail spending declined last month. This is also via the Wall Street Journal. As consumers felt the pinch from inflation, higher gas prices, and rising interest rates, retail sales, a measure of spending at stores, online, and in restaurants, fell a seasonally adjusted 0.3% in May from the previous month, according to the Commerce Department. That was the first decline in month-over-month retail spending this year. The pullback in spending, another indicator showing the economy is losing momentum as the Federal Reserve takes action that we just told you about to raise interest rates and combat historically high inflation. Consumer spending buoyed by strong job growth and stimulus measures was the backbone of the country's economic recovery since a brief recession caused by COVID occurred in early 2020. The strength is now fading in the face of the strongest pace of inflation in four decades. And, of course, amid that four-decade high level of inflation, we have astronomical gas prices, more than $5 a gallon across the country. And the new talking point, I guess this is the latest uh, messaging galaxy brain decision that they've made over there at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House line now is to appeal to the oil company's patriotism or something. Cut 30, this was just minutes ago. We are, we are calling on them to do the right thing, to be patriots here, uh, and not to use the war uh, as an excuse or as a, as a reason uh, to, not put, to not put out a production, not, to not do the capacity that is needed out there uh, so, that the prices can, so that the prices can come down. That was Corrine Jean-Pierre the White House press secretary, who definitely sounds like she knows exactly what she's talking about. Didn't that sound like just infuse you with confidence that she knows what's up? Be patriots and lower gas prices and don't use the war as an excuse. I think the people using the Putin war as an excuse are inside the White House. This administration has been uber, relentlessly hostile to the oil industry. And now they're like, hey, ramp up production. What are you guys doing? Explain yourselves. Be patriots. Embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. Let's see what they come up next week, what they come up with next week or next month, because they're going to be dealing with some very painful realities being felt by the American people for a long time. They're going to run out of scapegoats, I think, but we'll see. Maybe they'll get really creative. In any case, joining us now on a separate matter is Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox News, also anchor of Fox News Channel's Fox News at Night. Every weeknight at midnight Eastern, she's host of the podcast Live in the Bream. She's a best-selling author twice over, including her latest book, The Women of the Bible Speak. And Shannon, you are a very busy person, and we are very grateful to have you here. It's always my pleasure, Guy. I would like to pick your brain as an expert on the Supreme Court and a very savvy and plugged-in court watcher. I know a lot of Americans, especially many in the media, are sort of hanging on every single decision day when the court is handing down rulings. Could this be the day that we get the guns decision? Could this be the day that we get the abortion decision? Uh, That was not the case here this morning. Another slew of rulings, not necessarily on those really big hot-button issues, 
but still some cases being decided. Uh, just so far, what are we seeing in terms of any patterns or trends that you're noticing in these in these decisions and maybe the splits, which justices are lining up with whom, you know, with which the what the coalitions might be looking like. And then what's the expectation of when, for example, Dobbs, the abortion case out of Mississippi, might finally drop for real? Because I think we, we got the leak. We kind of know what's going to happen, but it's not official yet. Correct. And listen, uh, every opinion day, I receive texts, emails, phone calls today's the day. Today's the day. I got several of those today. I think everybody is obviously very anxious to get the answers on that particular case. Um, Obviously, it's still in the headlines for weeks because of that leaked draft and where we think we're going with that. Um, It's interesting. We've seen some interesting splits with um, Justice Gorsuch. He definitely has a libertarian streak to him. And with um, he's often a, a very strong voice on the Native American issues. We had a um, tribal gambling decision that came out today. Um, his deep work in the Tenth Circuit and out in Colorado, he has um, sort of almost a little niche of experience, um, of expertise in dealing with some of those particular issues. So um, we've seen him and Justice Barrett break a lot this term, which is interesting. Um, she's showing her independence as a new justice and goes with different coalitions. She's moved around quite a bit. But, you know, we we haven't seen too much that would lead us to believe that the five we think are on board with the Dobbs and sending the issue of abortion back to the states um, has moved at all. From everything that I can tell, it has essentially that coalition of five has stayed together. Yeah. And I mean, it. Oh, that's fine. We we, we love dogs in the background on the radio and on television. We just love dogs in general here uh, on the program. It's interesting, though, because I'm seeing some lefty commentators sort of expressing surprise that Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch are not just lockstep conservatives together on every single ruling or every single case. And I mean, that shouldn't really be that surprising. These are independent thinkers. These are very smart people. I know there's this cartoon version that these coalitions are just purely ideological and they all vote together every time unless, you know, it's a really small case or something like that. Uh, that is not turning out to be true. It actually never really is true. I would say the progressives, when the chips are down, typically do stick together on the big cases. But we've seen this type of pattern over and over again. And it's just weird to see people surprised over and over again that actually these are not just automaton robots who vote the way Republicans tell them to or whatever. It's not how it works. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. that keeps the ideological, um, you know, sides together. But there's a lot of mixing. And today we had two unanimous opinions. I mean, you don't often hear about that. One was from Justice Kavanaugh, one from Justice Sotomayor. Those are more common than people would think. Um, The craziest mix-up that we had today, well, there were a couple, um, not mix-ups, but meaning the mix of justices. The third case that we got that was on that Native American tribal um, gambling situation, it was written by Justice Gorsuch, and it was him, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, Breyer, and Barrett. And the dissent was Chief Justice Roberts, Thomas Alito, and Kavanaugh. So you just never know. You can't assume that you know what people's positions are going to be. We get a lot of clues from the oral arguments, but even those can have kind of smoke screens and rabbit trails. So until it's on paper and comes out that door, uh, you just don't know. On the Dobbs case, this abortion case, we seem to have the evidence that there will be five justices on board for overturning Roe, invalidating Roe, and sending abortion policy back to the states. 
And it looks also likely that there is a sixth vote, Chief Justice Roberts, to uphold Mississippi's law, which restricts most abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. So five to four, maybe on one split, six to three upholding that limitation on abortion. There's a little bit less anticipation. I I might even say and and just kind of uh, alter my adjective here. I'd say there's a lot less drama and anticipation for the Dobbs case because of the leak. And to your point, Shannon, there's no indication. In fact, there are a few in the other direction suggesting that uh, anyone has changed their mind. The evidence appears to show that the coalitions are set and we know what's actually going to happen ultimately with that decision. So usually it's a total black box. You have no idea what's going to come out and everyone is just waiting and waiting and waiting for those papers to be handed to clerks who then go, you know, rushing down the steps and hand it to the media, uh, you know, interns running around and all that. That's good stuff. In this case, in this unprecedented leak, unless something changes, which, again, it doesn't seem to be the case, we kind of know the outcome of one of the most highly anticipated cases ever, which is a, a weird feeling to have in some ways. So I guess my question for you, twofold, number one, do you think that the justices are going to wait as they traditionally do to put out the most controversial, most anticipated decisions on the very last day so then they get out of town as soon as they're out? Is that your best bet on Dobbs when we're actually going to see that maybe even you know a few weeks from now? And secondly, relatedly, has there been any update on the source of that leak, this unprecedented, I would say really damaging to the institution leak of the draft opinion from Justice Alito? Mm-hmm. I do think uh, the coalitions stick together. There's been a ton of pressure on the chief, as you know, to get this opinion out the door because there are threats. Um, you know, I talked to someone today and um, they didn't understand. And of course, if you don't you know, really plug into the court, you may not know that the votes on that draft mean nothing. They don't mean anything. And if you take somebody out of that vote matrix, it changes everything potentially about this case and certainly about the court. So to get out the door, there's been a lot of pressure since the leak happened. What I've been told from internal deliberations, a couple of things. First of all, that the five are still together, at least at the last point I was updated. And also that there was no expediting of the case internally. There was no call for those dissents to get in earlier because, of course, you know, the majority draft is a, is circulated. You wait for the dissents to come in. They have their chance to respond. And then the majority gets a chance to wrap it up all in a bow and respond to the dissents. And then you get ultimately what everybody votes for and puts out the door. Um, and I'm told that the dissents were not expedited, um, that they took their time getting them in. So that okay. lends me to think this would traditionally – end at the, the end of the month, as we would think. But again, knowing there's that pressure because there are actual threats on people's lives to get this thing out the door. Um, I, I do think it'll probably be the last week of June, but we're prepared every day just in case it okay. is earlier. Um, no updates on the leaker. And, you know, there is a there is a conversation about does the chief wait until everything is out the door, you get those cases out and then say, here's what we found. I think my guess is that's how he would prefer to do things. But remember, if it does in any way involve a clerk, after July, they go on to their next job. And they are yeah, not well, maybe not, though. I mean, that could be that could be grounds for termination, I would say, even at a future job. That makes sense what you're saying. Uh, I, I would love some resolution to that, but we will know in the weeks to come. Shannon Bream, our friend on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. So I have to admit that I thoroughly enjoyed reading a very lengthy piece, tens of thousands of words, in The Intercept, which is a left-wing publication, about the state of the professional left in America today, progressive organizations, often D.C.-based. It's written by a guy called Ryan Grimm. I saw that it was shared across social media, and I wanted to take my time and luxuriate in the schadenfreude. Because the upshot of the story is these organizations on the left have become so insanely woke that they cannot actually accomplish anything beyond attacking each other and eating each other alive from within under the power structures of wokeism. Oh, it is just delicious. It's nourishment. Ramesh Panuru on Twitter quipped, I'm not going to read the story all at once. Some things have to be savored. And that's right. Like stories like this, for instance. Now, we talk about wokeness and the excesses of weaponized political correctness on this show all the time. We sometimes make fun of it in our Woke Tales segment. We do it on the radio. I write about it at townhall.com. I post about it on my social. I co-authored a book about the dangers and the toxins of this kind of culture back in 2015. End of discussion with Mary Catherine Hamm with the paperback updated version in 2017. We were talking about cancel culture and the woke mobs before woke and cancel culture really were terms that people were using. And while it's disturbing to see people's lives destroyed or livelihoods disrupted or ended because of these mobs, and they come after conservatives, they come after just average people, often very unjustly or disproportionately or totally falsely. Remember the story of the random guy who got fired because his hand was resting out of his window in his pickup truck in the shape of an OK sign? And he was like within a mile of a Black Lives Matter rally and someone took a photo and had him reported to his employer in California saying that was a white supremacy gesture. This was a Hispanic guy. He lost his job over nothing, just a completely made up crazy thing. And those examples have proliferated across the whole country, which is why we fight it regularly on this show. However, what's interesting about the phenomenon is that the people I think who are most likely to get sucked under and taken out by it are people on the left, progressives, quote unquote, in good standing, people on the team, people in the tribe, people who have more or less consented to the lunacy because they marinate in it. They participate in it. These are their rules within their milieu, within their self-righteous, neurotic political team and a very angry, bitter, dysfunctional ideological family. That's what they've got going on over there. And so if you kind of buy into it or at least indulge it and play along with the rules and the rules are capricious and always changing and wielded by bad faith people who want to punish and settle scores and advance their agenda, whatever that might happen to be in the given moment – 
if that's the situation that you have placed yourself in, then yes, you are going to be extra likely to be victimized by it, particularly vulnerable to it. And is that unfair? In some cases, I would say yes. Is it a little bit more enjoyable and less upsetting? I would also say yes, because this is what you get for being part of the professional hard left. This is what you get. It's like, oh, well, I did not expect this leopard to eat my face. Oh, and all of a sudden you have no face. Oops. We will get to the delectable details and the amazing quotes in this story in a left-wing publication right after this short break. You don't want to miss any of it. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, halfway through the week on The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. And let's launch in now to this story that I was teasing in the last segment. It's a story by Ryan Grimm at The Intercept, and it is just spectacular. I do not have nearly enough time to bring you through all of it, but I'm going to try to enjoy, along with you, a few choice excerpts. Because you have people going off in this piece, leftists, griping and whining and really trembling in fear about their own organizations. Many of them doing it on background, meaning without their name attached, because they're so fearful of their own staff, their own colleagues, their own donors, their friends, quote unquote. It's like the Washington Post recently where that Felicia woman, before she finally got herself fired, was on a one-woman mission to get someone she described as a good friend punished, suspended without pay, if not fired, with friends like these, dot, dot, dot. So the opening anecdote of the Intercept story is about an abortion rights organization called the Guttmacher Institute, and Grimm quotes a manager at this organization who talked about the role systemic racism plays in society. And she was on a Zoom call with the staff talking about the ways their group could counter systemic racism. Staff's suggestions turned inward, including, quote, loosening deadlines and implementing more proactive and explicit policies for leave without penalty. So people of color were saying, people who were white on behalf of people of color were saying, There is systemic racism, so let's be allowed to not show up to work more without penalty. Staffers suggested additional racial equity trainings, noting that a previous facilitator in the previous round had not included sufficient time, quote, to cover everything. With no black staff in D.C., it was suggested that Guttmacher do something tangible for black employees in other divisions. In the eyes of group leaders dealing with similar moments, staff were ignoring the mission— of the organization, in this case, abortion, and focusing only on themselves, using a moment of public awakening to smuggle through standard grievances cloaked in the language of social justice. Often, as was the case at Guttmacher, they played into the very dynamics they were fighting against, directing their complaints at leaders of color. This organization was run at the time, and still is, by an Afro-Latina woman. So that's a couple boxes she's checking. 
quote, the most zealous ones at my organization when it comes to race are white, said one black executive director at a different organization, asking for anonymity so as not to provoke a response from that staff. The story describes how Guttmacher, this element within the abortion movement, has been, quote, ripped apart by internal grievances and divisions. Ripped apart is interesting phrasing, given what their business is. And these grievances and these divisions, ripping them apart, asunder, from internal forces, quote, often centered on identity and race. The six months since then, since this meeting we were describing, has only seen a ratcheting up of the tension with more internal disputes spilling into public and amplified by a well-funded, anonymous operation called Repro Jobs, whose Twitter and Instagram feeds have pounded away at the organization's management. So this is reproductive justice, quote-unquote, organizations attacking the reproductive justice establishment by accusing these groups of being systemically racist and making all sorts of demands. For example, here was one... Instagram story from Repro Jobs. If your reproductive justice organization isn't black and brown, it's white supremacy in heels, co-opting a WOC movement, meaning women of color. The news in May of 2022 that Roe v. Wade would almost certainly be overturned did nothing to temper the raging battle, end quote. They've been so totally consumed by the poison of wokeness within their own offices that they're basically ignoring their actual mission at a moment that you might say is the most precarious or perilous for the abortion movement, certainly dating back decades. But that's not stopping them from going at each other, hammer and tongs, endlessly on this stuff. The Ryan Grimm Intercept story goes on. That the Institute has spent the course of the Biden administration paralyzed makes it typical of not just the abortion rights community, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, and other reproductive health organizations, similarly locked in, knocked down, drag out fights between competing factions of their organizations, most often breaking down along staff versus management lines. It's also true of the progressive advocacy space across the board, which has more or less effectively ceased to function. The professional left has effectively ceased to function in recent years because they're too busy trying to cancel each other than to do the work. I'm all for all of this. Again, I call this the feel-good story of the week or, or even the month for good reason. The Sierra Club, the ACLU, Color of Change, Human Rights Campaign, Time's Up, Sunrise Movement, the Movement for Black Lives. And many other organizations have seen wrenching and debilitating turmoil in the past couple of years. In fact, Grimm writes, it's hard to find a Washington-based progressive organization that hasn't been in tumult or isn't currently in tumult. He writes about Twitter, Slack, and Zoom being the battlefield in these fights. With all of this stuff mixing, quote, in a way that is no longer able to be ignored by a progressive movement that wants organizations to be able to function. These executive directors of the organizations largely spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of angering staff or donors. There it is again. They are terrified. They are petrified of each other. Grimm writes that these 
official leftist groups find themselves, quote, locked in virtual retreats, slack wars, and healing sessions, grappling with tensions over hierarchy, patriarchy, race, gender, and power. He said it feels like a cartoon version of left-wingers who, quote, spend more time in meetings fighting with each other than changing the world. So enjoyable. Here is one of the officials actually quoted by name. Quote, most people thought that their worst critics were their competitors, and they're finding out that their worst critics are on their own payrolls. We're dealing with a workforce that's becoming younger, more female, more people of color, more politically woke. I hate to use that term in a way it shouldn't be used and less loyal and less loyal in the traditional way to a job. This is a woman named Loretta Ross who runs a group called Sister Song. And she quickly adds that the lack of loyalty and all this problematic behavior, quote, is not the fault of employees. Oh, it's not your fault. If you're reading this, I'm not blaming you. Please don't throw me out. Don't hound me out of the organization that I've run for years. I'm not blaming you. Are we okay? I think we're okay. Are we? It's just recriminations and backlash around every corner. So you're either being frank and candid off the record or on background, or you are tiptoeing on broken glass because there are people waiting for the next thing that they could be mad about and get spun up over. The silence, and this goes to our book, End of Discussion, I mean, it's like right out of End of Discussion. The silence stems partly, one senior leader in an organization said, from a fear of feeding right-wing trolls, I love this, who are working to undermine the left, I guess this would be me, and other conservatives. Adopting their language and framing feels like surrendering to malign forces, but ignoring it has only allowed the issues to fester. So then they quote one of the leaders of the group saying, well, the right labels these things, cancel culture, call out culture, wokeness, and we don't want to use their framing and their language because then we're letting them win. But then it's like, quote, how do we talk about it? That's the whole point. They can't talk about it because all the words and all the phrases are all problematic. So you can't talk about it. And they're caught in this cycle of misery that they have created for themselves. They are inmates in a prison slash asylum that they have built. And they can't even talk about the problem because they're afraid that using just blunt, correct language is somehow a concession to right-wing trolls. Amazing. One of these other leaders says, I got to a point like three years ago where I had a crisis of faith. Like, I don't even know. Most of these spaces on the left, they're just not, they're not healthy. Like, these people are just not, they're not doing well, he said. Like, neuroses doesn't really seem to capture it, or anxieties. Seems like there's a lot of mental health issues on the professional left. The dynamic, the toxic dynamic of whatever you want to call it, cancel culture, whatever, is creating this really intense thing. And no one's able to acknowledge it. No one's able to talk about it. No one's able to say how bad it is. This is one of these executive directors. A lot of staff that work for me, they expect the organization to be all the things. A movement. Okay. Get out the vote. Okay. Healing. Okay. Take care of you when you're sick. Okay, it's all the things. 
can you get your love and healing at home, please? But I can't say that. They would crucify me. I'm now at a point where the first thing I wonder about a job applicant is, how likely is this person to blow up my organization from the inside, said one leader, echoing a refrain heard repeatedly during interviews for this story. The story being Ryan Grimm's piece in The Intercept this week. This might sound eerily familiar to some of the bosses at The Washington Post and The New York Times, given the left-wing insurrections happening in newsrooms from activists masquerading as journalists, demanding things and going after their colleagues and seemingly blowing up the organization from the inside. When did this all start? Well, this is an interesting line. Sooner or later, quote, each interview for this story landed on the election of Trump in 2016 as a catalyst. Things got very ugly after that. Extreme anxiety developed. And I think this is insightful. Progressive organizations convene meetings to work through their response. Many of them left staff extremely unsatisfied. A looming sense of powerlessness on the left nudged the focus away from structural or wide-reaching change, i.e. the mission, which felt out of reach, and replaced it with an internal target that was more achievable. Maybe I can't end racism by myself, but I can get my manager fired, or I can get so-and-so removed, or I can hold someone accountable. So rather than focusing on what the purpose of their organization might be, some left-wing cause du jour, some left-wing enterprise, they instead decide to channel their power and unleash their power through grievance on race and gender and power and target the people closest to them, their fellow comrades. Because they could get results, and that would be satisfying. And they could get some scalps, and that would quench certain thirsts. And, yeah, that's fine. Our activism matters, but I got to get Nancy or whomever. I got David demoted. Doesn't that feel good? Here's another quote from another left-wing leader. I love this. The leader says the strife has become so destructive that it feels like an op. Quote, I'm not saying it's a right-wing plot because we are incredibly good at doing this ourselves. But if you tried, you couldn't conceive of a better right-wing plot to paralyze progressive leaders by catalyzing the existing culture where internal turmoil and micro campaigns are mistaken for strategic advancement of social impact. Progressive leaders cannot do anything but fight inside the organizations, thereby rendering the orgs completely toothless for the external battles in play. Everyone is scared, and fear creates inaction. (laughs) Doesn't this sound healthy? And again, you'd feel bad for these people if they hadn't created the monster that's now devouring them. A few more morsels that I want to share with you from this story. We'll get to those as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. One more series of quotes from some of these leaders spouting off, again, without their name attached to it because they want to keep their jobs and they're terrified. One executive director saying they hear from their younger employees all sorts of things. It's white supremacy culture. It's urgent. Response, no mother bleeper. It's election day. We can't move that day. Just do your job or go somewhere else. 
These are people demanding all sorts of concessions from their employers and the chance to just not show up or do work because of white supremacy or whatever victimhood. Being black has by no means shielded executive directors or their deputies from charges of facilitating white supremacy culture. Quote, it's hard to have a conversation about performance, says one manager. I'm as woke as they come, but they'll say he's black, but he's anti-black because he fired these other black people. The solution, he said, quote, I buy them to leave. I just pay them to leave. That's how you get rid of people who are destroying the organizations and not wanting to work. They're just paying them off like extortion money to go find other work. Inner turmoil often can begin, the manager said, with performance-based disputes that spiral into moral questions. Quote, I also see a pattern of people who are not competent in their organizations getting ahead of the game by declaring that others have engaged in some sort of ism, thereby triggering a process that protects them in that job while there's an investigation or turmoil over it, a foundation official said. Such disputes then trigger broader cultural conversations with battle lines being drawn on each side. And on and on it goes. Within the corridors of the professional left here in Washington, D.C., where the totem pole of grievance and identity has been weaponized to the max against these very organizations and the people that work there. So you have young, radical people who are self-absorbed, filled with anxieties and neuroses, filled with angry demands and bitterness because they've been told they should be angry and bitter and entitled. And they fill their days settling scores and pursuing some meaning or purpose in their life, which often diverts from completely the ostensible purpose of their employment. And the people in charge are completely powerless and helpless. They are hostages in the situation. Everyone seems to know it. Everyone's trying to exploit it for their own benefit in their own ways to help themselves or hurt other people that they want to hurt. And no one can do a damn thing about it. They can't even talk about it because that's too much of a problem. You hear about the phrase making a bed, then having to lie in it. This is a California king size waterbed. And they are all adrift together. And there's no getting out, apparently. They're stuck. And I'm fine with it. Their rules, their problems, their dysfunction, and their total lack of focus on battles that matter. Because they're too worried about what the woke kids down in the cubicles might be plotting next. Absolutely amazing. Good stuff. By Ryan Grimm in The Atlantic. Yes, and if this does seem tasty, like I'm just eating up this schadenfreude by the spoonful, guilty as charged. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Hey, 
It's our final hour on this Wednesday here on The Guy Benson Show. It's known as the happy hour around these parts. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. I actually introduced some friends to the Long Drink for the first time last night at the house. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can go online, find out where the Long Drink is sold near you. They're expanding hugely across the country. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, always drink responsibly. And here at the program, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast is always free, always on demand. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight in the 6 p.m. hour on FBN, the evening edit. I'll be there. Hope to see you there as well. With us now is Congressman Ted Budd, a Republican from North Carolina, and he is now the GOP nominee for the United States Senate in the Tar Heel State. And, Congressman, it is great to have you on the show. Welcome. Guy, it is great to be with you and uh, appreciate you having me. Appreciate your listeners. Absolutely. And we've met once or twice at various events, but I believe this is your first voyage here on The Guy Benson Show. So we're delighted that you could join us. You are now the nominee of the Republican Party for the U.S. Senate in your state of North Carolina. Just tell us, if you would, a little bit about the race. It is not one that is necessarily huge on the national radar. I know there is a retiring Republican incumbent. It's an open seat. Under other circumstances, I think there would be huge resources flooding into it. But at least for now, a lot of the experts at least seem to think it's leaning in your direction, leaning in the red direction. Do you agree with that assessment? And what can you tell us about the dynamics of the race and particularly your opponent that you're going to be facing? Great question. So I look at this uh, guy, and uh, my greatest fear is that people nationally fall asleep on this race. And here's the narrative. We won – there's 100 counties in North Carolina in the primary, in a 14-way Republican primary. I won 99 counties. I missed Mecklenburg, where Charlotte is, by only 70 votes. And I won with 58 percent. Next person in line got like 24 percent. So people think, wow, I won big, so therefore that translates into the general. But it doesn't at all. This national race is completely different. We are working to wake people up and saying Chuck Schumer is coming after this. Uh, The darling of the left in my state is Sherry Beasley. They consolidated around her early on. She has been collecting and piling up cash to come after me and attack conservatives uh, here starting anytime, probably after Labor Day in the final push to uh, the election. So we are working hard. We are working fast to fend off Chuck Schumer from coming after me in this state. It is always a purple state. It's a high growth state. We've got a lot of university towns. We've got a lot of city centers and there's a lot of urban voting. I think, look, they're fed up, but I don't depend on the red wave to make this thing happen for me. Uh, we got to go out there with our message that wants to help working families, whether it's at the dining room table, putting groceries in their refrigerator uh, guy, or whether it's at the gas pump. And this is where it's hurting people. So the same message that I had for the uh, for the primary is the same message for the general, and that is I'm concerned about inflation and uh, the household economics and what the Biden administration is doing. I'm concerned about the, the border and the crime and the fentanyl that happens with that and the defund the police movement. Uh, and, and then I'm worried about America being weak on the international stage versus strong. Not only does that hurt us internationally, it hurts us right here at home. You know, I'm listening to that answer, and it makes a lot of sense to me. If you just look at it analytically, which I can do from this distance, you 
necessarily can't because you're in it. It's very personal to you every single day. You're running the race. Your name's on the ballot. Your name's on the lawn signs, right? You're the one approving the ads. But from where I sit, you look at North Carolina, President Trump very narrowly won it in 2020. Senator Tillis, the Republican senator who just won re-election, did so very narrowly, slightly larger margin than Trump, but still awfully close. Huge turnout election in a very split state. You would think in a red wave year, which this is shaping up to be, you would probably have a bit of an easier time of it, but you just never know. And you can't bank on that. And you certainly don't want your voters counting on that because it comes down to turnout. I know it's the biggest cliche in the book, but it's, it's true. It comes down to turnout. And it's crucial to have motivated people turning out to vote, not just the Republican base or the Trump base. I know that you have former President Trump's endorsement. But also a lot of people who swing the elections in your state back and forth who are, which is good news for you, very upset with the status quo, very upset. Overwhelmingly independent voters are breaking against this president. And it's very easy to see why when you just look around in American life right now. You mentioned pain at the pump. Let's start there when it comes to some of these issues. We saw a letter fired off today from President Biden to the oil companies, basically demanding answers from them, which kind of blows my mind. We know what the problem is here. He wants to blame Putin. He wants to scapegoat now the oil companies. He has been tying their hands behind their back ever since he became president. He promised to do exactly that. And now the results are coming home to roost. And he's going to the companies like, explain yourself. Does anyone buy this? I feel like almost everyone should be able to see through this. There's a few concerning gullible folks out there that unfortunately have been educated by the radical left. So there's a bill on the floor this week that Nancy Pelosi is going to put up on the U.S. House. And I'm sitting in the U.S. House now running for the Senate. But there's a bill. It's like lowering food and energy prices or some name to that effect. Here's the challenge. I mean, we're all for lowering food and energy prices and gas prices. But when you look two pages into this 30-page bill, and they want to hire additional bureaucrats to go after the, the food companies. And they just like Joe Biden's doing right now, they want to go after the oil companies, which would love to drill more oil and produce and sell more oil to American consumers and American families. But you don't do that by hiring more bureaucrats. So they name, they misname these bills to deceive the American people to say that hey, they're working on it, they got it, but they don't. Everything that Joe Biden does is making it harder for everyday Americans. And the solution is to stop the Biden agenda. We need to get fiscal responsibility back to Washington. We need to get back people back to work again, producing, because as you would probably believe, and I know I believe, Milton Friedman would say that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods in the Federal government has pumped so much money into the economy, particularly with the American Rescue Plan and $2 trillion, and it's chasing goods that aren't there because it's paid people to stay at home and exit the workforce, and so they aren't Mm -hmm. producing. So that leads to everything from inflation to supply chain crises and everything in the chaos that we're dealing with right now. Ted Budd, my guest, he's a Republican congressman from North Carolina. He's running for the U.S. Senate. He's the GOP nominee in that state. And, you know, you were talking about putting an end or putting a stop to the Biden agenda. I was thinking about this earlier. The reason things are not worse in this country right now on a whole host of issues is because there have been some checks on Biden's power and the Democratic agenda, whether it was Joe Manchin saying no to five trillion dollars in an extra gigantic nuclear inflation bomb. That was one check. 
You have a judge saying no to the ongoing insane COVID restrictions on airplanes. You had another judge saying no to ending Title 42 at the border. A lot of these crises would be much worse if Joe Biden and the Democrats had just gotten their way. And it strikes me that the best way to put a real more, I would say, not permanent, but a more lasting check on that agenda is by electing a Republican Congress in November in the House and in the Senate. And that's why you're running. Since we're talking about gas prices, Biden's out there with all these machinations and stunts. One of your would-be colleagues in the U.S. Senate, Senator Wyden from Oregon, who's a big left winger, not surprising where he's from, he has proposed this week raising taxes on oil companies as something of a solution to gas prices and inflation. Can you explain this one to me? How does raising taxes on oil companies reduce costs related to the business of the oil industry? I mean, it's, it's like not only economically illiterate, it's exactly backwards. It reminds me of what Ronald Reagan said in that the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So, you know, that's what they're saying right. that the solution is government when actually the, the problem is the government. We don't it's have a solution a to everything, problem. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, just look at that food and energy bill that I talked about from Pelosi. Well, they're going to hire more government to solve the problem. And what do they want to do? Uh, what does Ron Wyden in the Senate want to do? Hopefully when I win, then he'll be a colleague in the minority. And that's what we want him to be it's in the minority. And uh, we want to take back control of the Senate to stop the Biden agenda. But we don't have a taxing problem in this country. We have a spending problem. And that's why we're $31 trillion with a T, trillion dollars in debt. Uh, and this is not only concerning and an existential issue for right now. This is an existential issue for my children and our next generation. So it's tremendously concerning. And I know that if Sherry Beasley, my opponent, wins, that she is going to push the gas on the Biden agenda. But what I'm going to do is put the brakes on the Biden agenda because we know that the people, the American people, are the solution to this, not the federal government. I mean, there's no question that she would be a rubber stamp for Chuck Schumer. And I would say if your opponent, Ms. Beasley, wins, it is very likely that Chuck Schumer would remain under that circumstance, the majority leader. He'd have one more vote to do anything that he wanted. And as we've seen in the last couple of years in the Senate, they are one or two votes away from doing a lot more harm and damage on crushing the filibuster, maybe packing the Supreme Court. The list goes on. There are a few people standing in the way of that, and you're one of them. Well, the, you know, the, the fight is is narrowly thin. We can't depend on Joe Manchin. You mentioned Tom Tillis winning in 2020. Uh, he only won by two points, and that's one of the reasons is because his opponent began to collapse, you know, with a personal failure there towards the end. Uh, we're so glad that we we have you know a 50-50 split. But that means Kamala Harris is a tiebreaker. We want to take away the power of Kamala Harris, the vice president, as the Senate. Uh, tiebreaker. But when we see uh, what Biden's, uh, what Beasley's going to do, you know, she's going to vote against the police. She's going to defund the police. And I'm going to vote to back the blue every single time. She's going to take it easy on criminals. Uh, and I'm going to be tough on criminals and keep them behind bars and off of our streets. Uh, and the, the list just keeps going on and on about the differences between what she believes and what I believe. But not only did Tom Tillis in 2020 win by only two points, uh, Sherry Beasley lost by only 400 votes in a statewide race as the chief justice of the state Supreme Court. So she mm-hmm. is known uh, statewide. 
She's going to raise a lot of money from Chuck Schumer and from California, and uh, they're going to dump it into our state to try to turn it blue. Well, I was in the elevator a couple years ago with Chuck Schumer, and he's thinking about the 2020 race at the time, and he looks at me and he says, tell me about your state. And I go, well, sir, they're leaving high-tax states like yours and coming to great states like mine. So we know that he (laughs) wants to turn it. He wants to make North Carolina look a lot more like the blue parts of New York, and we can't have that in North Carolina. Just to put it as starkly as possible, if the Republicans are going to win back the Senate by any margin in November, it will come through the state of North Carolina, and this seat must be held by Republicans. Absent that, the Democrats will remain in charge and Chuck Schumer will remain majority leader. Ted Budd has to win in North Carolina. I think it's likely that he will for a number of reasons, but that's not going to happen magically on its own because that's what the wave is supposed to do. And that's what the polling shows and that's where the winds are blowing. It only happens if people get off their rear ends and do the work and show up to vote and It's not like something that will be mystically manifested. It will be done and achieved by people, the people in North Carolina. And it is absolutely essential to hold on to this seat as you look at the map across the country. Last question, Congressman Budd, just for the audience who may not be from North Carolina but are very interested in the Senate picture writ large, and they're going to hear more about you in the months to come, just give us a little background on on who you are, where you come from, how you got into this political game at some point, now that you are hopefully, in a few months from now, destined for the U.S. Senate or headed to the U.S. Senate. Well, thank you, guys. So I was born in North Carolina. I was raised on a still a working cattle farm there. Uh, grew up in a family business that did janitorial and landscaping. So if I wasn't putting out pine needles and pulling weeds and mowing grass, I was buffing floors on the third shift. Um, About 12 years ago, a local police department came to me and said, would you buy this bankrupt, closed indoor gun range and let us train our officers there? So I did, and they encouraged me to open it to the public. So we're one of the good guys uh, in the the firearms industry that uh, helps our community responsibly enjoy firearms. So we fully support the Second Amendment and understand it and uh, how it can, in the hands of good people, uh, make their neighborhoods safer. Uh, So uh, that, and I'm sitting on the financial services, and when I look to my left uh, as a conservative, I see (laughs) physically all, I see three out of four of the squad. I look behind me, I see Maxine Waters. So that's the fight that I've been in since I came into Congress in 2016. Ted Budd, Republican congressman from the 13th District in North Carolina. He was raised, born in that state, and now he is the Republican Party's nominee for the U.S. Senate in an essential must-win race for the party come November down there in Tar Heel country. Congressman Budd, we look forward to having you back. Good luck in the race. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Guy. It is the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour, and we'll be right back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Well, on a very sad note, a somber note, we say RIP to Internet Explorer. That web browser is officially gone as of today. Microsoft pulling the plug. On that venerable browser, reports the Wall Street Journal, after more than 27 years. You can picture the icon, can't you? The lowercase e in blue with sort of the ring of Saturn around it. It was a staple in web browsing for many people for many years. No longer an option. It's done. 
I'm not sure I've used Internet Explorer in a long time. I've had a Mac for years, so I've used Safari and then Chrome. Google Chrome is the one that I have way too many tabs open on at all times because I open tabs in the process of show prep and aggregating information for pieces that I'm writing at townhall.com or what have you, and then I get caught up in the work and don't close the tabs. So right now I'm looking at just chaos on my screen one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. There have to be forty tabs open here. And I realize there are some of you cringing at that, just hearing about it. But it's not Internet Explorer. It's Chrome, my backup browser is Safari. But yes, I did use IE through the years. Wyatt, are you old enough to have used Internet Explorer or were you in a generation that never really used that browser? Yeah, I I used it in elementary school. In elementary school, wow. For what? Just Typical, like, 10-year-old stuff or? Yeah, for, for work assignments and for playing Oregon Trail in, oh. uh, during class. Oh, I love Oregon Trail. I loved that all the way back to, like, third grade. Did you ford the river? Did you ever die of dysentery? That was always a bummer. Christine, any final thoughts or farewell for Internet Explorer? Do you use the Internet? Do you know what that is? <laughs> yes, I do. I do use the Internet. And I, too, loved Oregon Trail. And I, too, always, always died of dysenteria. I never got out west. Dysenteria, that's a new one. Christine, when you go on the Internet, as you call them at your home, is there this sound that it makes when it connects? Like, is that the Internet that you have? Is that your speed? That's the one we used to have, though. I remember that. Yeah, dial-up. I'm just surprised you don't still have it because you're very... Reluctant to change on things related to technology. Yeah, speaking of poor YY, had to uh, go through some things with me because don't forget, he's off next week. So I'm your tech gal all week. Mm. Yeah, we had to stop the lesson pretty early because I was already lost. Pray for us, everyone. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. In our first hour, we caught up with Josh Krasauer, politics editor for now at National Journal. He's about to start a new job. Also a Fox News radio political analyst breaking down the results from last night in primaries plus that big special election flip in South Texas. Here's part of that discussion with political analyst Josh Krasauer. We spent... A fair amount of the first half hour talking about the race in Texas 34. Pelosi's tiny margin gets even thinner ahead of November and January. I know the district changes when the new Congress convenes with redistricting. So this might be tougher with the new lines for Republicans to hold on to after the November election. But if you just look at the current district as it is currently drawn, The way that Hispanic voters have shifted is really eye-opening, and I think there have to be implications and lessons to be learned and, frankly, uh, fear and concern to be grappled with on the Democratic side, given the fact that it's no longer just polls or New York Times stories about something in the water down there. It's actually happening in hard black and white you know, vote totals. Yeah, Guy, there, there are about 27 seats that Democrats hold that are true battlegrounds that have 15 percent Hispanic vote or more 
in, in, in their districts. And Republicans are now looking a lot clo- more closely at those races. They, 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 they are betting that even a small shift – and by the way, in Texas, this is a huge shift. These, yep. You just said the numbers, Guy, yourself. Like how it, – it's unprecedented to see that dramatic of a change in such a short period of time. But Republicans are looking at other districts, and, and, and they may not need that, that dramatic of a shift. They just need you know, a five-point shift, ten-point shift among Hispanic voters. And if that happens – a wave election could turn into a tsunami that that races that were not contested, not seen as competitive for a long time could become competitive because Hispanics are no longer reliable democratic voters. And I think it's going to be different in different, the Texas that you're seeing in the Rio Grande Valley, a particularly pronounced shift away from the democratic party that it's going to be written in the history books in years to come. Florida, the, the, there was a dynamic with South Florida, Voters, Cuban Americans, Puerto Ricans, as well. That really also is, is, is a ominous foreshadowing of the Democratic lagging fortunes in that state. It's a little more of a mixed bag in other states, but again, it, it, even if you lose a few points in these big states, Nevada for one, uh, New Mexico, the governor's race in New Mexico, even if it's a, a marginal shift towards the Republicans, it could turn again races that shouldn't be in play into big pickup opportunities for the Republican Party. You mentioned Nevada. That's a very interesting state in November, as far as I'm concerned. In the congressional races where the Democrats may have gerrymandered themselves into oblivion, there's a chance the Republicans could, on a really good night, sweep all of the races, the House races in that state. There's a governor's race. There's a Senate race as well. I know some people believe that Catherine Cortez Masto, who's the incumbent Democratic senator, might be the most vulnerable, most endangered Democrat in the whole Senate, she now has an opponent. It's Adam Laxalt. He won the primary last night on the Republican side. Here he is in victory. Cut 13. This is Laxalt. These failed policies brought on by radical elites are not just a product of Joe Biden, though he has served as a useful puppet, but they lie at the feet of Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and senators like her who make the crazy woke agenda possible in America today. This election is going to be a referendum on Senator Masto and all of these elites who look down on us. Elections have consequences, they say, and well, so do these liberal policies that are driving Nevada and our nation into the ditch. Let's talk about Nevada, Josh, for a moment. I know that there are Republicans who are very bullish on that state looking ahead to November. I know that there are experts on the ground like John Ralston in that state, who've been standing the alarm for Democrats saying they're getting their rear ends kicked on voter registration by the Republicans and some of these other factors that are at play. What do you think of Laxalt winning the primary? Not exactly a surprise. And then how are things shaping up toward the fall? I agree that Nevada offers Republicans the best pickup opportunity in the Senate, largely because You've got a guy who held a high office before in the state. Uh, I, I think there are some questions about Laxalt and where he stands on some issues, how you know some of the, the, the comments he made in the aftermath of January 6th that are going to come into play. But with inflation the way it is, the, in Nevada, the gas prices are higher in Nevada than almost any other state in the country. It's a working-class state. The, casino, I mean, the shutdowns at the casinos really hit hard. The, the labor force there. It's just a, a sort of a, a confluence of forces that is really hitting the Democratic Party hard in Nevada and add, add to the woes that they're facing with Hispanic voters to that mix. It is a, a state that has a sizable Hispanic constituency as well. 
yeah, it, it, it suggests that you could see Republicans winning the governorship, the Senate race, and every single House district in the state if, if this if the polling is to be believed, if a wave does indeed continue to, to, to flood uh, the state, as the polls suggest. So Nevada, to me, I, I said this on Fox News Sunday last weekend, but if you gave me a whiteboard like Karl Rove and I had to pick one state to look at, as a bellwether, it's Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. Republicans, and if it is, that would suggest we're seeing a huge wave in, in the 2022 midterms. Yeah, and in that Senate race, the incumbent, Cortez Masto, is basically the embodiment of a generic Democrat. She does anything Chuck Schumer ever tells her to do. She votes the party line every time. There's nothing independent or really that interesting about her. She is a generic Democrat. And if you look at the generic ballot, that's not a great place to be, especially in a state where there are so many dissatisfied people. My full interview with Josh Krasauer, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com, part of the full podcast, the entire show, on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Netflix has a new show. It's based on Squid Games. I want to volunteer someone for it. We'll get to that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Wednesday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free on demand every day. I'll be on the evening edit, FBN, coming up in the next hour. So perhaps I'll see you there over on TV. But here in our final segment, I'd like to discuss the TV show Squid Games. It's from Netflix. We talked about it here multiple times back when it was all the rage. Was that last year? There's one of the big pandemic things, not quite as pandemic tied as Tiger King. I think that was really early days. But Squid Games was a smash hit. In fact, Squid Game, singular, I'm saying it wrong, Squid Game was just renewed for a second season. And it holds the record as the most watched, most popular series of all time on Netflix with 1.65 billion viewing hours on that show. If you never heard of it or you never watched it, or you don't have Netflix. It's basically this dystopian, very violent series out of South Korea where there's this underworld of people who invite debtors, people who are deeply in debt, typically gamblers, to come win a huge sum of money by playing a series of games on some remote island. So there are definitely some Hunger Games vibes. And the people show up, hundreds of them, to participate and try to win this giant jackpot. And what they don't realize until the very first game is that if you lose these games, you die. So it gets awfully dark, awfully quickly. And there will be one survivor. Everyone else dies except for one person at the very end who wins a huge amount of money. And so the show is all the twists and turns getting to that final confrontation. It was such a hit that season two is in the works. It's officially greenlit. But in the meantime, Netflix has made an announcement that they're going to create Squid Game, the participation reality series, where they are going to basically take the concept of Squid Game, 
turn it into a challenge. They're going to have 456 players, which I guess is the number from the fictional show, in real-life competition in a series of these sort of surreal, dramatized, bizarre games. All in pursuit of a record-setting jackpot prize of $4.56 million U.S. Now, presumably, if you lose at red light, green light, and you flinch after the red light is called, you won't get immediately shot by a sniper in the reality series, which they're calling Squid Game The Challenge. Right, they'd have to have one hell of a waiver that you would sign to really do Squid Game. So you'll probably just be eliminated. But they're taking the concept and trying to basically mirror it in real life for real contestants chasing more than $4.5 million. And again, I'm guessing there will be, hopefully, no human misery or death involved. However... We would like to volunteer producer Christine for this. We know all of her gambling debts go back many years. She spends far too much on mama's juice. She dragged her own daughter to the racetrack like a degenerate gambler just last weekend. And she also likes the idea of Squid Games because she imagines all the people who are losing in their fate. It just reminds her of what happened to Carousel when she lost a challenge back when producer Christine was a young girl. So there's a lot here that really just, in my mind, is a fit for producer Christine. The only issue would be you'd probably have to be away from the show for a while in order to go and participate, assuming you weren't eliminated quickly. You know, it could be one and done and you're back by Tuesday or something. But if you have the skills to progress to various challenges like crossing the bridge made of plate glass windows, basically, or the marbles challenge or the cookie that you have to not crumble, Christine. I mean, it's your own nickname. There's just a lot of things lining up here. You could be gone for quite some time, in which case Quiet Wyatt would be the not-so-temporary executive producer here of The Guy Benson Show while you're out trying to not get fake killed on Squid Game The Challenge. So, Do you think you would be up for this? Would you be interested in wearing one of those costumes and sort of marched around by the faceless people with the different shapes covering their faces? Yeah, I I think I could do this. Would you have a shot? Would you have a shot at winning $4.56 million against the other 455 people? I think I have a good shot. I'm not saying I could definitely win it, but um, I'm pretty good at games. I'm actually always the winner. If I don't win, it's a problem. So I definitely can handle the red light, green light. Obviously, I think like the cookie challenge and the bag. Well, I mean, the, th- the thing is, Christine, you said if you don't win at a game, it's a problem. I think that is understating it when it comes to squid games. It's a real problem if you lose a game. <laughs> well, like you right. said, this is the reality show. So there's no, you know, I'm not going to die. Um, Probably. But I just don't, I don't know. I... Uh, just would, would you backstab people? Like, would you form alliances? Would you play the game like you see on other reality shows to try to get closer and closer to the big pot? So this is – that's exactly what I was about to talk about where my problems would probably come into play. Same thing like Big Brother. 
I am such an open book and tell everybody everything. Keeping secrets is very hard for me. So that's probably where I would wind up losing. Yeah, I think that'd be pretty early then because you'd come, you know, waltzing in in your leg warmers or whatever else you're wearing. Like, hi, everyone. I'm Christine. I'm so excited to have 455 new best friends. Be like, oh, this one's going to be easy. And they just undermine you and you're gone in like round one or round two. You have to get more ruthless, Christine. You can't be chief happiness officer at Squid Game. You've got to be looking out for numero uno and being a little conniving. See, yeah, that. that... You can can do that. You manipulate your husband a lot. I do. Dan, don't laugh. I do. I mean, I know. No, I don't. I don't. I I just (laughs) guide him. It's not called me. We don't call it manipulation. At least I don't. Right. That's what I'm doing. But I'm saying you need to channel some of that energy if you're going to succeed in this endeavor. Just imagine all these other people are Bobby standing in the way of something that you want. What would you do to get what you want? And I think the answer to that question is almost anything. I mean, just ask Carousel, although she is obviously unavailable for comment, as she has been now for many years. She just died of old age. I don't every day. I wonder how you're going to tie Carousel into the show. And it it amazes me. Every day you figure it out, figure out. Not every day. I'd say about once a week. We have to keep the memory alive. Right. Carousel's brutal death will not be in vain. But I think that does also speak to the ruthless side of you. Right. If you can channel your anger and viciousness at your pony that you rejected and had killed as a child, and then the way that you're able to pull certain strings and tug at certain strings and get your way with your husband, you do those two things combined. You stay focused. You think about the discipline of War Wyatt. I think you might have a shot to get into the top 400 contestants. Wait, how many are there? 456. Guy... I, could probably, I think you could beat you could probably beat several dozen. I think I could get into top ten. Mm. Let's take it. Let's take it. Let's pull this. Dan Wyatt, do you think I can make it to the top ten of Squid Game? Wyatt, um, I don't know about top ten, but I think you can. You could finagle your way in and and get up there. But I would say top one hundred. I'm going to say top twenty. Wow. Okay, top 20. Dan, what do you think? I think people would very much underestimate her. She'd be like kind of this big personality talking to everybody and just, you know, go behind people's backs and win at all costs, just like Mm. you said. I'm going to go with top 50. I think Christine could be in the top 300 maybe. The problem is, Christine, I have it on good authority that day three, the squid game is the – Eat French onion soup challenge. And I think that's where the whole thing comes off the rails for you. You're out. I'd be out. I'd be completely yeah. out. I, Wyatt, thank you for the confidence. Top 20. Wyatt is about to leave for vacation, so he's just in that headspace. He's like, oh, you know what? Let's just say top 20. I'm going to Disney. Right? If, he was, if this were the Monday after his vacation, I think his answer might be different. But he's feeling good. I'm surprised he doesn't have his Mickey Mouse ears on across the glass here in the studio. In fact, I know, Christine, you are curious, Christine, about this Disney vacation for Wyatt. Oh. We didn't have time for it today, but how about tomorrow? Do we want to maybe 
tease that for tomorrow on the home stretch, some Disney-related stuff, because there was a Disney headline about Disney-related trips that I just saw. So maybe we can marry these two items, a news hook and your curiosity, and build some radio magic tomorrow on the show. I have so many questions. We might have to do an extended home stretch because I have now, so many questions. Let's not get carried questions. away. That's, that's, that's a lot. But that's what we're going to tentatively plan on for tomorrow. So if that's not a reason to tune in, I don't know what is. For the Guy Benson Show Thursday edition, same time, same place tomorrow. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.